0: Hello! Welcome to A History of Heavy Metal in 100 Songs episode 13. Today we'll be discussing Smoke on the Water by Deep Purple. If you've not heard this song before, or it's been a while since you have, pause the podcast, give it a listen and come straight back. It's 1972. Heavy metal has landed and firmly wedged itself into the music canon. As bands push the limits of technology to get louder, more distorted and heavier, Technology itself pushes boundaries to match these sounds more conventionally. More bands are incorporating this heavier sound too, whether they're new, or want to take advantage of this novel timbre that just wasn't available to them when they started. It's a wild west though, and every band with a guitarist is being called heavy metal by some journalist somewhere. Even a lot of the heavier bands of the 70s, by today's standards we wouldn't really associate with metal. Yet, we're in this phase known as the first wave of British heavy metal, consisting of bands like Deep Purple, Jethro Tull, and the discussed Zeppelin and Sabbath, among others. Apart from Sabbath, none of these bands really are considered heavy metal today. Globally, ZZ Top, Early Rush, ACDC etc. were also liberally referred to as metal. Yet, the label got tossed around like a hot potato with no band actually wanting to pick up that title for themselves. Even the Sabbath brushed the heavy metal genre off themselves, insisting they were hard rock. It seems metal was too alternative, too left field, even for the bands making it. There doesn't seem to be a solid agreement on how the genre started or where the phrase came from. Many point to Steppenwolf's 1968 hit Born to be Wild, in which the lyrics heavy metal thunder appear. However, the bluesy psychedelic song itself is a far cry from metal. And even for 1968, it wouldn't have been considered that heavy, plus the lyrics themselves are in relation to motorcycles and not music. I've heard people say the term comes from a description a journalist gave about Jimi Hendrix, his guitar sounded like heavy metal falling from the sky, but I can only find people referencing this anonymous journalist from an unnamed publication. I have no idea who said it where or if it was even said. Another origin is that the original heavy metal bands had strong ties to the metal factories of the Midlands, and their music sounded like that environment. Every webpage or book I read, or documentary watched, gives a different source of that phrase. Apparently, the first time heavy metal appeared in print, I guess, outside of the periodic table, was in the 1962 novel The Soft Machine by William Burroughs. Again, this was in reference to something other than music. The year before Born To Be Wild adorned our radios, the British band Hapshash and the Coloured Coat released the LP featuring the human host and the heavy metal kids. A reference to Burrow's book. They were more psychedelic rock than heavy metal though. Perhaps the name heavy metal is an amalgamation of all these sources, taking meaning from each, as well as borrowing from 50s slang heavy, meaning serious and profound. The early metal and proto metal bands we've looked at so far, King Crimson, Jimi Hendrix, Black Sabbath, I mean, they, they certainly were profound. Either way, by 1972, the term is coined and being thrown around the place like plastic cups at a summer festival. One band incorporates this metal frontier well. Whether they intended to be heavy metal, hard rock, or something completely different, Deep Purple's early career tells the tale of Britain's sonic evolution. Their debut release, Shades of Deep Purple, hit the record stores in 1968, the height of flower power and psychedelic rock. It encapsulates this sound well and is very much actually just a product of its time as opposed to a groundbreaking album. And that's not to say it's a bad album by any means. Their song Hush had commercial success and gave the band some popularity. Two more albums followed within the year, but their popularity was waning. LP number four was recorded with the Royal Philharmonic and had some mixed reviews, not just from the press, but from within the band. Richie Blackmore wasn't into the orchestra, he wanted to play rock music and jump around the stage. Luckily, he got his wish on the next album, In Rock, which saw Deep Purple take on contemporary heavy influences and change to a harder rock sound. They had commercial success with this album, reaching number four in the UK album charts, breaking the top 10 in many other countries, but only reaching number 143 in the US charts. The follow-up, 1971's Fireball, saw them reach new heights in the charts, peaking at 32 in the US and number 1 in the UK, but it was 1972's Machine Head which solidified them in history as one of rock's greatest bands. It's exhausting to look at Deep Purple's history. They've been active for about 5 years and have 7 LPs. That's bordering on King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard territory. It's not just the sheer volume of releases, but the changes in sound as well. Machine Head definitely goes harder than their previous discography. One track, Smoke on the Water, became such a hit, it threw the band to stratospheric levels. It's synonymous with rock music and even the guitar. It's a song which needs no intro, yet somehow I think this is the longest intro I've done yet. And speaking of intros, that's really where the magic of this song lies, that intro riff. Just those first three notes, as soon as they ring out, it's instantly recognisable. Guitarist Richie Blackmore is playing parallel fourths up the G minor scale, root, third, fourth. Parallel fourths means the chord he's playing is a note with the relative fourth. As he plays up the scale, The fourth should change due to modes, but he doesn't change them and they stay relative to the note. A simpler way to look at it is power chords without the root note. Don't worry if this isn't making much sense. It would take a lot of time to really go into the theory behind this and probably extend this podcast by about another 10 minutes. The key takeaway from playing this progression as parallel force is it gives a certain sound. On bar 2, Blackmore varies the riff by bouncing off the flat 5th to the 4th. I'm sure you know by now this is the infamous tritone. The riff spends most of its time ascending, and there are more ascending notes than descending, although it does end with a minor third to root. I'm going to get back to this in a bit, but these parallel fourths are played in a specific way. Blackmore picks each individual string as opposed to strum them together. I think what he's doing is he's playing the lower string with a pick whilst plucking the higher string with his middle finger. Makes this method of playing with the parallel fourths or headless power chords. It gives a very bright sound. The lack of the root means there's no lower note anchoring these other two notes. Yet because of the progression being played, we expect there to be. This makes it sound kind of brighter. And This is further emphasised as Blackmore is using a Hornby Skewers treble booster. This, as advertised in the name, is an effects pedal that boosts the treble, or high end of the guitar making it sound brighter whilst also adding overdrive. This is all played on Fender single coil pickups. The riff sounds bright, distorted, it's very in your face to the point where it has this harshness but it's actually not out of place. The guitar has to be this prominent because this riff is so sparse. It has three notes in one bar. Something has to keep our attention. And it really does. I don't think we realize how sparse this riff is until we stop to think about it. These sonic punches, which, as mentioned, ascend, build a sense of intrigue and excitement. This riff ascension is matched in how well the intro is layered. Each instrument comes in, filling more and more space on its way, The hi-hat comes in on the third round, filling in light percussion, along with John Lord's distorted Hammond organ, which really beefs that riff out. The rest of the drums enters with the simple but effective beat, giving the song its groove. And next is the bass. It climbs chromatically to G, taking over the low end of the song. It's the pulse of the song, adding groove along with the drums. And it's saying, hey, remember me? It's the low end. Musically speaking, it's beautifully crafted where each instrument fills its own space in a piece of art where the whole is much bigger than the sum of its parts. This idea carries on into the verse. Each instrument fills the sonic landscape in its own way. Musically, it's a very meaty song. This layered approach kind of goes against conventional songwriting. The verse vocals come in at the 50 second mark and the chorus around 1 minute 25. Most catchy pop songs by the one-minute mark are well into the chorus. The tune is carried by Ian Gillen's vocal lines. The lyrics tell an interesting story. Bands used to rent out large cavernous buildings to record in as it was a bit more exciting than sitting in a studio all day and would afford them different sounds. In Montreux in Switzerland... A casino was closing for the winter, where it was a seasonal resort where tourists wouldn't travel there due to the harsh winters. The band rented the casino along with the Rolling Stones mobile studio. It was a truck filled with recording equipment so bands could easily record in these sorts of makeshift environments. It was almost the end of the season and the band went to see Frank Zappa play at the casino. Frank Zappa comes up a lot in this podcast, and he's a great musician and very metal adjacent. And unfortunately, I haven't given him his own episode, but I hope his importance does come across in this series. Anyway, during Zappa's gig, someone fired a flare gun at the ceiling and it caught fire. Luckily, there were no casualties as everyone managed to escape, thanks in part to Funky Claude, aka Claude Knobs, the founder of Montreux Jazz Festival who helped people escape. However, the casino burnt down in a huge inferno witnessed by the band. And that's where the song gets its name from. It looked like there was a lot of smoke on the water. They ended up recording the album in an empty hotel. The song does miss out they started to record in a theatre but were forced out due to noise complaints. Apparently the roadies were holding the door shut whilst police were trying to get in. The song interestingly tells the story of how it was written. It was the last song to be written and recorded. At the end of the session, the engineer said they were short by one song. The band already had this riff to hand as it was something they liked to jam around, but in 20 minutes they had these lyrics written out to go with this song. English folk music usually sung stories about events that happened, although through many tellings these stories would often be embellished to the point they're not terribly recognisable anymore. With the introduction of rock and roll in the 60s, lyrical themes in British music vastly changed. Whilst every song tells a tale, the retelling of events in this sort of way was less interesting than singing about sex and drugs, or obfuscating meaning through poetical and psychedelic metaphors and language. Whilst I doubt the members of Deep Purple were thinking about British folk music traditions when putting pen to paper, it's interesting to see this formula appear in heavy rock. The lyrics say quite flatly what happened with very little frill or artistic flair. The last verse of the song is more about their admin on setting up a new recording space than the fire. I do appreciate though they didn't have the time and no one really listens to Smoke on the Water for the lyrics. It's about that simple yet powerful riff. Is it heavy? For the time? Yes. Is it metal? Well, I'd imagine most people would say no, but again. Genre has a great deal of subjectivity to it, and I could understand if someone wanted to argue it was. I do think the chorus lyrics are pretty metal, though smoke on the water, fire in the sky. Out of context, it sounds like a fiery hellscape. Curiously, some heavier bands who certainly ride that metal line, or fall directly into the category, in the early 70s seem to have fallen by time's wayside. Louisiana's Survivor different to the band Survivor who did Eye of the Tiger, definitely delved into territory we'd recognise as metal. Pentagram, who I almost gave an episode to, were playing an early form of Doom. Ohio's Granicus definitely straddled that psychedelic early metal line. Germany seems to have had a thriving psychedelic rock scene, which I think is heavier than America or the UK's, with bands like P205, Night Sun and Lucifer's Friend. A band that's probably just as heavy as Black Sabbath, if we're using them as a milestone, was Budgie. Again, largely forgotten and hardly referenced. They were definitely one of the UK's heavier bands of the early 70s. What did work in their favour was being covered by Metallica on their 1998 covers album Garage Inc. And I would really recommend listening to Budgie's version of Breadfan, which was the song Metallica covered. It's really good. Deep Purple rejected the heavy metal title at the time, although these days the members do like to mention they're considered one of the first heavy metal bands with pride. Personally, whilst they have been influential in the genre, I don't think they cross that hard rock line into metal. I've always enjoyed their music, but kind of dismissed them as a dad rock band. Like most bands I research, I do have a new admiration for them and Machine Head is a solid LP. I don't dismiss them as dad rock. They are the cornerstone of dad music. I mentioned this to my mum, who pointed out that back in 1972, their fan base wasn't dad's. It does build this picture where a bunch of people in their early 20s goes to see Deep Purple live, and after the gig, they leave the venue chanting, Hi, hungry, I'm dad, and making their way to a lawnmower shop or golf course. Either way, it's great music for everyone, not just dad's. Smoke on the Water is a timeless classic which exists as part of our cultural makeup. in a similar way to Rock Around the Clock. It made Deep Purple a household name, even if most people in those houses can only name this one song of theirs. It's become a rite of passage for new guitarists starting out to learn that riff. In fact, some time ago, I think it was Hewlett-Packard made a whole advert around beginner guitarists trying to pluck out that riff. It does a really good job at being tuneful yet heavy, musically dynamic yet tight. It fills the sonic spectrum with just three stripped back chords. In 1972, this would have been the definition of power, and it would have got people bopping their heads, or dare I say headbanging? It was the third single to be released from Machine Head, and it hit the stores as a 7-inch in 1973. It reached number 4 on the Billboard charts, but only number 21 in the UK. Whilst these numbers may not paint a picture of a most famous hit which still revered 50 odd years later, reviews were highly positive and the single went gold in the UK and the US with 400,000 and a million sales respectively. Whilst chart success can be a good indicator to measure the success of a song, it's often not. Depending what else was released that week or month even, other events which shape people's buying habits. Plus, a song can be culturally or artistically significant, without formally selling much, as we'll see with a lot of other songs we'll cover. That does remind me, actually, in my first year of uni, back in 2007-2008, I was in a four piece band and the lead guitarist tried to convince us to release a single in January and we should each get 500 people to pay for a download. His reasoning being, consumers don't spend money after Christmas and it would be easy to have a number one song with a mere 2,000 purchases. Whilst I sort of understand his logic, I'm (laughs) I'm not sure where he got those numbers from. And I think the four of us collectively knew less than 80 people. Considering we never played a gig either, we didn't go through with that plan. Anyway, I, I don't mean to digress. This track almost didn't exist. It was an afterthought, a contractual filler. And the band were surprised how well it took off. When the casino in Geneva was rebuilt, they added the sheet music for Smoke on the Water as an art installation on one of their walls. Their influences felt far and wide through bands from Metallica to Van Halen, Alice in Chains to Pantera, Rush to Motorhead. The list is pretty endless, especially as they were a huge influence on the Wobbam. Other than music, My time goes to homebrewing and I have a smoked porter called Smoke on the Porter. I feel like that's a sufficiently dad level joke and on that note I must go and turn the thermostat down. In the next episode we'll be discussing Schools Out by Alice Cooper. Thank you for listening.